For the week of July 26, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, in response to the ongoing immigration crisis, a group calling themselves Grannies Respond has organized a caravan to McAllen, Texas, at the Mexico border, where they will engage in a series of protests against the Trump administration's policies. For Granny Claire Nelson, her reasons for wanting to do this trip are clear. For my grandchildren and all the children of the world, just to make their future a much better place, safe and peaceful place for them. So that really was my impetus of wanting to do this. And then in light of Trump's recent threats toward Iran, we are joined by Kathia Geller. She is the president of the board for the advocacy group SISCA, which is dedicated to building personal relationships between the people of Iran and the people of the United States by establishing a sister city. And finally, we have our call to action with Indivisible Washington's research team member, Jim Austin. That is all coming up, so stay with us. Before we start, I will just quickly say that the Skype connection is a little wonky in the first segment here, but it gets better, so stick with it. So even though the news narrative moves on, the immigration crisis at the border continues as of Wednesday, July 25th, despite court orders to reunite them, nearly 2,600 children are still separated from their parents. This per California Senator Kamala Harris, as corroborated by PolitiFact. Additionally, some 463 parents are no longer in the U.S., and many of them have been deported. So in response to all this, starting on July 31st, a team of grannies, along with some grandpas, are heading to the Mexico border, picking up people along the way and hosting rallies protesting the Trump administration's actions against immigrants and asylum seekers and their children. And we are joined now by two of the early members of Granny Respond, Claire and Barry Nelson. Hello to you both. Hi, how are you? So, you know, I want to start with where the idea came to have a group of grandmothers travel to the border. Uh, Claire, where did the idea originate? Well, it started here in um, Beacon. And, and that's in New actually, York. You're in Beacon, New York, I should mention. In New York, right. And it actually began as a Facebook post uh, by a small group of local activists, you know, who were outraged by the humane treatment of children and families at the border. And they had a few meetings. And like you said, we were one of the early people at meetings. And just interest just grew like crazy. And mostly through networking and social media. You know, and then the granny concept came about because um, of the tradition of protests, you know, that are led by senior women. Grannies represent a moral authority of families. Um, You know, we are more vulnerable in our society. We give unconditional love and support to our grandchildren and also have a lot of free time. So I think people were saying, well, let's just get some grannies and get on a bus and we'll make a great impact. And just to be clear, on the bus, there will be others, too, besides grannies. And I do attribute this movement to becoming viral because of the social media, all the networking, Facebook, Twitter. I mean, that really has spread throughout, you know, the country and it's become viral. And it's amazing because nobody really figured it would take off like such a movement that it is now. Well, the idea is really uh, it's compelling. I mean, as you say, grandmothers are the they're kind of the the moral center of, of our society. Mm-hmm. So it makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm, I would love to for both of you to talk about why you personally were moved to make this trip. Claire, you, you talk on a video on the website for Grannies Respond about being the child of immigrants. Uh, so talk about some of the parallels right. there. Well, 
Uh, yeah, I did. My uh, parents came to the United States in 1938, and they were fleeing from Austria, you know, during the beginning of the Holocaust. And I grew up believing that America was the land of dreams, the land of free, you know, that everybody could pursue what they wanted to in their lives. But my parents always told me to never to forget what happened, and it may happen again. So, you know, when the family and children were separated at the border and children were living alone in, you know, very humane, outrageous kinds of conditions, I knew I had to act because I felt like, wow, this could happen again. And I, and it was exactly what my, you know, parents said. So when I heard about the granny respond, I knew that I needed to join and I needed to be a force in this movement and for my grandchildren and all the children of the world just to make their future a much better place, safe and peaceful place for them. So that really was my impetus of, of wanting to do this. Yeah, and but actually on the same video, you talk about having a very special connection with your grandchildren. Uh, tell us about that and, and, and basically what you said on the video. Well, I have five grandchildren, and I was at the birth of each one of them. Uh, I was a volunteer doula when I lived in Vermont, so my children wanted me to be part of their births. And I think that that really, we had a very, we have a very, very strong bond together. Mm-hmm. And we spend a lot of time with them, caring for them, giving them that unconditional love, spoiling them, you mm-hmm. know, not having to do all the maintenance that we did as as, as parents. <laughs> Uh, with with our children, so we do have this special special bond. But we get tired. I must well, say. sure, yeah, and 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 actually, I, I'll, we can touch on that a, a little bit. But I, I would imagine that this trip that you're going to be making down to the border is going to take a great deal of stamina. Um, you know, Barry, uh, you're the grandpa, so I want to bring you in and and talk with you about some of your reasons. Uh, so you right. you have a history with activism that started with your family growing up, right? Right. And my, my family was, uh, polit- they were political activists, and they taught me a couple of things. One was to really stick up for the underdogs. And, and at the time that they were activists in the 50s and in the 60s, they were very involved in, in labor unions. They were very involved in civil rights. And, and, and so that, that really is, is deep in my heart. I think like Claire, my, my grandparents also sought asylum. They, they were escaping before World War I from the pogroms of the Tsar. And they came over here with absolutely nothing, but were, were allowed into this country you know, relatively easily. I mean, they, they had to go through Ellis Island, but they were accepted into this country. And that's really just been, you know, something that we all grew up with learning about. Right. Well, I mean, we're a country of immigrants, and I think uh, uh, oftentimes we, we forget that. Well, so let's talk about the road trip. Uh, so th- as you said, you're, you're based in Beacon in, in New York, and so that's where you're going to be starting. Uh, the first event is a rally in New York City. Uh, you're going to be stopping in Reading in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Louisville, Kentucky, Montgomery, Alabama, then on to New Orleans and Houston before arriving at a detainment facility in McAllen, Texas on August 6th. Uh, I understand the cities were chosen because many of them have important midterm races, and uh, I hear that you picked Louisville uh, specifically to go and rally against Mitch McConnell. So well done there. Um, what, what are you going to be doing at each of these stops? 
Well, I think it really depends. I mean, the reason why we picked these cities because we felt like that we could have a lasting impact after we left, after the caravan drove away, that maybe we would leave something behind, something to think about for everybody in the cities. So we'll be doing various kinds of things. You know, the places that have the detention centers, we can hold rallies and, and, and vigils. And the places that don't, we can be out on the street and sing some songs. Like in, in Pittsburgh, we're going to sing with the Raging Grannies. And we can talk, Barry will talk about the songs that we're going <laughs> to sing later. Did you say the um, Raging Grannies? Yeah. Have you heard of the Raging Grannies? Tell us. Well, they're an international group of women, uh, ages anywhere from 50 to 94. And I've been working with a 94-year-old woman. And basically what they do is they sing protest songs. They take, you know, regular hymns and then they change the words to whatever activism they want to, um, you know, project, whether it be gun control, immigration, climate change. So I, I found this woman and we're going to do a lot of singing in, um, in Pittsburgh and in, in other cities. But we will also, um, let's see, in one city, we're going to go visit the museum. In other places, we're going to uh, rally at a, a facility that they're planning on building. And in New Orleans, we're going to have some bands and some marches. So Well, you can't go to New Orleans without having music, for sure, right? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, I want to talk about what Granny's Respond is demanding uh, is to be done about the crisis at the border. What specific actions are you demanding? Well, we're really demanding that, you know, all children are released, all parents are released, and that, you know, really following some of the laws that are already in place, which, you know, the Flores Law, you know, where, you know, kids can only be detained for 20 days, and, and also to use some of the policies, I think, that Obama had been using, which was, you know, to let people go, put bracelets on them. And, you know, I think that that, that actually, from what I understand, really worked pretty well. Basically, the administration created this humanitarian crisis. They rolled it out without any plans at all, without any understanding about the ramifications of it. And, and, you know, without really, you know, uh, really understanding, like, what would actually happen. The other part that's, that's really, um, you know, very upsetting is that this has now become a billion-dollar industry in this country, just like, you know, the, the, um, you know basically the prisons now. I mean, there have, there's private businesses that are now involved in housing kids, and it's in their interest to keep kids and families and whatever as long as they they can, which is the same thing as, as the, you know, the, the system of prisons yeah. are now run by private companies. And I understand that, you know, you're also calling for the reunification of families and, right. and ultimately from the press release uh, to treat all human beings with respect and dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, as, as I was mentioning in the intro, uh, the media narrative continues to shift pretty much daily, sometimes hourly under Trump. And I wonder if part of this trip is about keeping the focus on what is happening down at the border. I think so. And I think that we want to keep it in the news. And we also want to make an impact on people that they have to get out and vote. I mean, voting is such an important piece of this. You know, we're going to have a petition that we're going to have people sign and and just to have like conversations, you know, to bring about conversations that are people having. And I think that this movement has and and, and really try to to go beyond the, the political parties in a way, because this really is a human right 
that has been taken away from these families and these children. So, and I, I think you know another really important point is to you know the, the grannies are, as somebody stated, an, an unlikely you know group of activists, and and we want to we want people to see that well if grannies can do this, then everybody can do this, and and it's so important that that we bring attention in whatever way we can to to the issues that that we're faced with now and and so that we can really get people out to vote yeah this november absolutely that is is the most essential part because you know all the demonstrations are going to help but we've got to turn it around we've got to get our numbers out we've got to get every single person out to vote and and get get control of the senate and, and of the House of Representatives. And that's certainly something that indivisible members are very focused on right now. So right. You're, uh, you're, you're certainly talking to the right audience there. You know, I'm curious, when you get to McAllen, what is the plan when you arrive at the border? Well, when we get to McAllen, you've probably read about that. We have uh, the Veterans Service Corps is going to be partnering with us in McAllen. So, and these were some of the, the – this is a group that's comprised of veterans who came to the defense of protesters at Standing Rock, right? Exactly, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So when they're actually there now, one of the uh, the main main mm-hmm. people from the Veterans Corps is there. And what he's going to do is he's going to seek out partners and organize a 24 hour plan of action and find what is really needed down there. So it's still a work in progress, but some ideas that have been thrown out, we would have a vigil, uh, we'll have a march. Uh, we will also volunteer um, in the immigrant community because they're saying that there's a lot of things that they need help with, like cleaning sheets and helping food and dishes. They'll uh, manage the caravans. We're expecting maybe a thousand people coming. So wow. we need to have to help that, you know, do some crowd control. They'll talk to the officers, get our our, our permits. We're really, really excited to be partnering with them. And I think it's going to be a great, like I said, 24 hour action plan. Well, you're um, talking about 24 hours and it's going to be a long trip to get down to the border. And so we touched on yeah. this a little bit earlier, but how are you uh, how are you preparing for that in terms of the amount of sort of stamina and energy that it's going to take to uh, to do all this? Well, a couple of things we grannies kind of all agreed upon was that we really didn't want to drive any more than seven hours a day. You know, and the the longest stretch, I believe, is from Montgomery to you know, from Louisville to Montgomery. The rest are about three to four, maybe five hours. Um, we also said that we really need to sleep in beds. You know, we're, we're done with like sleeping on the floor of churches. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so that that was um, I think. A lot of us are super excited about it. We have 30 people that we are, well, two vans of 15 that are the core group that will lead the the caravan. And then we have actually a, um, what do they call it, a staff and uh, documentary and new, yeah. news news a, people, a, news, uh, a news, news, van. news van. We have a woman who's in a camper. She's going to sleep in her camper. I believe she's going to be the, the first aide, and then everybody else is going to follow us. So we have a pretty strict schedule. We're trying to find housing in every single city, and if we can't, 
We'll just find, um, you know, cheap motels that we can spend the night in. Uh, the next morning, like I said, everything's organized. We're going to meet up in, in, a, in a staging area, and all the people that are going to join us in that city need to get there. We're going to be on time, and we're going to move forward. Um, personally, what we're doing is trying to figure out, you know, clothing that we can keep cool in because it's supposedly very hot down in, in Austin. Yeah, I can imagine. And, uh, yeah. You know, yeah, maybe even bringing some snacks and some mm-hmm. food. We're right. bringing our instruments, so we'll yeah. be able to sing some songs in the van. Right. And I think that, you know, most of us grannies and grampies have been on road trips right. in the past. And, um, you know, back in our youth when road trips were popular. And uh, so we have many of us have not really taken a road trip in quite a while. And uh, so, you know, that's that's exciting. There's a lot of adrenaline going on here. And and so it's going to be it's going to be an exciting trip. Uh, many trips that I, many road trips I've taken have not had the purpose and mission that this one has. Well, you talk about the adrenaline, and I'll just ask you. You know, a, a fellow protester who's going to be joining you in Louisville by the name of Sharon Cuts Mellum says that she is prepared right. to be arrested if it comes to that. How do you both feel about that? Well, you know, I I feel I'm sort of ambivalent about that because personally. I do not want to get arrested. It's not something that I'm that I'm personally going to do. I mean, I respect her choice of doing that. I think that you know, it's been it's been clear. It's, it's not it's not a it's not going to be like a policy of this of this uh, journey of the grannies that we're we're all going to do a, a civil disobedience action. And Claire, how do you feel about that? Well, I I kind of agree. I think we have to wait and see what the situations are and and what would be the reason for getting arrested. But I'm feeling the same as Barry, that I really don't feel like I want to get arrested. And we are going to be having a, uh, the Ruckus Society is going to be coming here on Sunday to kind of just talk to us about civil disobedience and, and, and what that entails to prepare us in the event that happens. And I think that it's just a choice. It's a choice for those who want to do it and others that say, you know, I, I cannot participate in, in that piece. Luckily, we, we do have the, um, the lawyer moms of America that will uh, represent, you know, legal represent us in every state that we visit. So at least that's that's put in place. Yes. And you've partnered with the, the lawyer moms uh, re- recently, which is a great development. One of the founders of the lawyer moms is actually uh, a friend and contributor to the show. So it's I can vouch okay. for the fact that it's a great organization. And I'm glad that you've partnered yeah. up. Um, I will just mention that anybody can join. There are caravans that are forming all over the United States. You can go to grannysrespond.org to learn more. Just in closing, I will just ask both of you, uh, what would you say to somebody who's thinking about uh, joining your trip to the border? Well, I would definitely welcome everyone who's thinking of joining us, you know, from all over the country. And, you know, we're going to make an incredible impact as we enter each city, you know, on the way to the border in terms of the the type of interactions that we have with people and rallies and vigils along the way. And on a practical sense, I would tell them to stay in touch with us, you know, through our Facebook page, events and timing of all our activities that that will be happening and be posted. And it's important Mm -hmm. for the caravans to really you know, think registering and joining us um, before yeah, we before right. we go to the next city. We have some uh, FAQs on our website to see what to bring. We're very excited about having new grannies and others joining us in the mis- mission and, you know, voicing their outrage 
uh, to this inhumane policy of the separation of children yeah. from their families. And, and I think I, what I would say to um, anybody that's thinking about joining, if, if they have any of the feelings similar to mine, such as hopelessness, despair, anxiety, worry about our future and the future of our planet, the future of our kids and grandkids, the best thing to do is become active in some form or another, whether it's joining the grannies, joining some other rally or demonstration, is just to get out there and speak your piece, and that's going to really make you feel better. Right. Because just sitting back and being complacent and not doing anything is, is really just feeds into all of, of those negative feelings that many of us have been feeling in, in, the, in the recent couple of years. Well, Claire and Barry Nelson, I want to thank you both so much for uh, taking this trip and also for taking the time to join us here on the show. Thank Great. you so much. Thank we you. Appreciate. Thank you very much. Thanks. So as most of you are aware, on Monday, in response to remarks made by Iran's President Hassan Rouhani about U.S. policies toward Iran, Trump fired off an all-caps tweet essentially threatening Iran with war. And the prospect of war with Iran is frightening on so many levels. And it's also a little strange if you consider the fact that despite the decades of tension between the U.S. and Iran, the vast majority of the people of Iran reportedly have very friendly feelings toward the people of the U.S. And it was this sentiment that led a group of Iranian-Americans based in the Seattle area to found SISCA, which stands for the Seattle Isfahan Sister City Advocacy, to try to address the hostility between U.S. and Iranian governments by fostering personal relationships between the people of Seattle and the residents of the Iranian city of Isfahan. And here to tell us more about SISCA, we are joined by our friend Kathia Geller. Kathia is the president of the board of SISCA. Hello, Kathia. Hi, Stefan. Nice to be with you. So, you know, I, I will state up front for everybody that your group is intentionally non-political. So we will try to steer away from the politics of this. But I will just ask you, in light of Trump's threatening tweets, um, I, I can imagine that you see a certain sense of relevance and even urgency to the work that Cisca does right now. Yes. In fact, um, in the past couple of years, we have had to uh, think over and over again as to what our mission is and why we need to press ahead. And from the onset, we decided that we would continue our work because our work is something that is important no matter what the political environment is, but it has more meaning now as there is so much misunderstanding about who Iranians are and who Iranian Americans are. So we feel it's really important now more than ever to talk about our culture and our people and what our contributions are here in the U.S. and in Iran. So we yeah. feel we continue to work. Well, I, and I want to unpack all of that, in particular the work that you do and what a sister city is and what that designation means. But I, I, as I mentioned in the intro, for people who may not be aware, uh, Iranian attitudes have generally been very favorable toward the people of the United States. Uh, I know that uh, Iranians have migrated to the U.S. for years. Uh, there was an, even an uptick of migration after the fall of the Shah uh, in the late 1970s. So uh, many Iranians have family members who live in the United States, right? That's right. That's right. I think uh, the turn of the century was when Iranians started immigrating in smaller numbers. Uh, but 
you know, understandably after the revolution, there was an uptick. There were a lot of students here already who were studying. And uh, before the revolution, many of them would return to Iran to work uh, and, you know, join their families. But after the revolution, many stayed and some of their families joined them. So there was an increase. Of course, the largest uh, population of our diaspora here in the U.S. is in Los Angeles area. But um, there are Iranians everywhere. And that's the thing is a lot of people won't know that um, someone they work with or someone they're neighbors with is an Iranian. And it's my understanding that uh, American culture is actually enormously popular in Iran, yes? Absolutely, absolutely. To this day, there are tour groups of Americans, believe it or not, who go to Iran. There's one group that's going this fall. They're going on an archaeological tour of Iran. Uh, There have been many, many tour groups that have taken Americans to Iran. Europeans never stopped um, touring Iran after the revolution. So relations with the West in general have always been very positive. Iranians are very hospitable by nature, and this goes back thousands of years. Uh, So if people – people are always confused, by the way, between the word Persian and Iranian. Uh, Give us – what is the distinction between that? I've always wondered that. I was waiting for you to ask me that. (laughs) I was going to. Persians are the way we refer to ourselves um, throughout history. People know the Persian Empire more readily, and Iranian is referred more to as the present-day Iran. And some Iranians, in order to avoid the unpleasantness that ensues after identifying oneself in present day, um, they call themselves Persians. But it's it's the same. Uh, Persian is just another word for Iranian. Well, as as you can see, there's a, a great deal to learn. Uh, I'm learning as we speak. So, you know, and one of the things also that I am curious about is what a sister city means. The aim of Siska is to establish official sister city status between Seattle and Isfahan. So, first of all, what does a sister city designation mean? Okay, so sister cities, just to give you a primer, um, is a nonprofit. Um, I'm I'm reading this from Wikipedia, just so you have the exact. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you, people can read along at home if they'd like. Then, yeah. Right. Exactly. But essentially, it's it's a it's a legal or social agreement between two cities. And in the U.S., it was in 1956 when President Eisenhower introduced the idea. He proposed this people-to-people citizen diplomacy that he felt post-World War would help heal some of the wounds and some of the divides and help people understand each other. Um, You know, back then, travel wasn't as easy as now. And of course, we didn't have the internet, where there's a plethora of information if you just want to go out and look for it. But he felt that this model would serve really well in building bridges between the U.S. and other countries. So it, it really took off in the 60s. And there were over there are over 2,000 cities and states and counties that are part, partnered with over 140 countries around the world. And Iran used to have several sister city relationships with the U.S., like Los Angeles and New York and other uh, cities throughout the states before the revolution. They are all gone dormant. So there is no active sister city relationship officially right now. But that is our ultimate goal. We're as Siska, we are looking to reverse decades of hostility between the U.S. and Iran by building human relationships between citizens of Seattle and citizens of Isfahan, just two great cities that we felt would be good to partner with each other. 
And we want to kind of emphasize our common humanity, the things that we have in common more so than what divides us, and uh, so that we can build a road toward peace and avoid confrontation, move away from war. So you can see how our premise is so timely right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something else that is timely is that I can imagine that your interactions with the people in Isfahan and in Iran uh, generally might be a little, for one of a, a better word, suspect. Um, I imagine there's a risk that some in the United States might in- misinterpret your intentions here. Well, I think there's probably some resistance on both sides wondering what's the real agenda here. But everything we do is cultural and very um, non-political. So we try to avoid those pitfalls uh, by making it clear. For example, we we sent um, some funds over to Isfahan to buy shoes for needy children there right before our New Year celebration. And we did that through the Child Foundation, which is an established nonprofit that has been doing work in support of um, poor families in Iran. So these are the kind of small projects that we do. On a larger scale, what we're trying to do is have more educational programs on the state side of things uh, so that we can educate Americans and others about who Iranians really are, both in Iran and here in the U.S. So we focus most of our energy here stateside. Have you yourself been to Isfahan? Yes, I have. I'm curious how people there are uh, receptive to the idea of partnering with uh, Seattle as a sister city. We've had wonderful reception from Iranians. Um, All the folks that have gone there for touring, because Isfahan is on everyone's tour list when they go to Iran, they usually go to, don't go to Iran without visiting Isfahan. It's the UNESCO World Heritage Site. What will people see there, actually, just for people who aren't familiar with Isfahan? Right. There are a lot of historic sites, the most famous of which is, a, is one of the largest squares in the world. And it used to be used for polo games, horse polo games. Um, but all around is an ancient bazaar or marketplace. And there are two or three very large mosques that are beautiful to see and a, an old palace. So there are lots of historic sites to see. Um, there is a very ornate and elaborate um, hotel that was built that actually an Agatha Christie movie mm. was filmed there. So, you know, Isfahan has been on the list for many people who want to visit Iran for a long time. Well, it sounds incredible, and it sounds like people there are are similarly as receptive to sister city status as uh, people here uh, stateside are. And I'm wondering, what do you hope sister city status will achieve? Is, Is the hope maybe that the goodwill from the people ultimately manages to filter its way up to governmental relations between the two countries? Absolutely. Um, We have proof of this. The gentleman who started the idea of this sister city um, is Fred Nolan. He's a retired lawyer here in Seattle, and he was involved in the 80s in the Tashkent Seattle Sister City Project. And that is a city in Uzbekistan, right? And that that, that was actually, as I understand it, was used as a model uh, for what uh, Siska does, right? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, um, their efforts during the Cold War was instrumental in ending the Cold War through citizen diplomacy, volunteer projects that they worked on with uh, people from the Soviet Union and from Seattle, meeting in Africa, working on uh, nonprofit projects and, you know, a paper crane project with school children building 
uh, hundreds of thousands of paper cranes and delivering it to world leaders for messages of peace. So a lot of the work that uh, sister cities have done, especially in Seattle, have led to real change on the political front. And so we are hoping to be able to break the ice, as one would say, Mm. um, in this relationship by kind of letting people know who Iranians are here by holding celebrations and festivals and events uh, that showcase our culture. Well, let's talk about one that you have coming up. I know that the Iranian festival called Festal is coming to Seattle Center on August 11th, right? Tell us about that. Absolutely, absolutely. That is put on by a wonderful organization in Seattle that was uh, started more than 11 years ago, 12 years ago. This is this is this will be the 12th annual Festal, um, Iranian Festal that takes place at Seattle Center. This year it's August 11th. Last year it was around the same date. And um, basically, if you want to have a total immersion day and come and learn about our culture, food, dance, music. Uh, you'll get that all at the Seattle Center Armory on August 11th. And it's put on by IACA, Iranian American Alliances, um, the Cultural Alliances. So that group has been very active long before we were around, and they've always had this summer festival. We, on the other hand, decided to try and showcase the Persian New Year, which is actually celebrated by over 300 million people around the world and is over 3,000 years old. And that happens in March. So um, we are grateful for uh, City Council Member Herbold and others at City Hall that have um, they have sponsored us for two years, and this next year we will also be back at Seattle City City Hall to celebrate um, Nowruz, which is our New Year, on March 17th. More than likely is going to be the date this year. Uh, you can come for free. It's open to families. It's from one to five in the afternoon. We kind of take over the ground floor. Uh, we have exhibits, we have artists, we have musicians, dancers, uh, we have our big Persian New Year table spread that people can come see. So it's another way that we are reaching out through the seat of government in Seattle at City Hall to showcase our culture, both for the pride of our own community and for greater understanding in the larger community in Seattle. Well, that all sounds fantastic. And actually, Kathy, before I let you go, I know that you were looking for volunteer help with CISCA. Uh, what capacity can, are you looking for uh, help with? Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you asked that. I'm <laughs> so hoping that somebody out there will help us. We're a nonprofit. We're all volunteers. Um, there are Iranian-Americans and Americans on the board, but everyone's either working or retired, and none of us are very computer savvy. So we have a Facebook page and a website and a Twitter account and Instagram, and that stuff just lies dormant all year long. So if anyone has social media capability, can give us a few hours here and there, especially ramping up around our events, like our Chefs Without Borders dinner that's coming for the second time around with Tom Douglas, we would really appreciate it. So graphic arts, social media savvy, um, Anyone who has that kind of ability, we would welcome them. And our website is Seattle Isfahan, spelled I-S-S-A-H-A-N dot org. And we're also on Facebook, Seattle Isfahan. All right. Terrific. I will make sure that those links are available to people at IndivisiblePodcast.org and also on the SoundCloud page. But uh, this is all just really wonderful and such a message of goodwill at a time when we really need it. So, uh, Kathy Aguilar, thanks for your work and thanks for talking with us about it. My pleasure, Stefan. Thank you so much. 
And finally, this week from the research team for Indivisible Washington's 8th, we have Jim Austin here to talk about some of this week's calls to action. Hello, Jim. Hello, Stefan. So the first call uh, is on immigration, and that relates to the first segment that we did on the show this week. And we are asking members of Congress, specifically GOP members, to oppose any legislation that would fund jails for immigrant families. So what should listeners know about this? Well, what they ought to know is that there are two bills, one in the House and one in the Senate, that would at least delay any further funding for detention centers until uh, there is increased oversight over ICE and uh, the effects of the uh, current administration's policies with respect to detention centers has been studied. Okay. Uh, Pramila Jayapal uh, from Washington is the sponsor of the bill in the House. That's H.R. 5820. Uh, it's She's called, leading the way on so much stuff. She is. It's, 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 really uh, it's called the Dunn Act, D-O-N-E. Uh, and Senator Kamala Harris of California is the sponsor of S-2849 in the Senate. So when people make calls to urge other uh, Democratic Congress people and uh, senators to co-sponsor the bills. Those are the bill numbers that they may want to make reference to. Okay, great. Um, And specifically, there's a call for senators to oppose current DHS and ICE policies that are ostensibly intended to deter migrants and asylum seekers. Uh, You know, both senators have spoken out at various times about the Trump administration's policies around this. Um, So tell us specifically what we're asking our senators to do around these particular policies. Well, uh, sponsor legislation that would discontinue uh, any further separation of uh, families or the indefinite detention of families. Uh, That's something that could be done both on the House side and on the Senate side. There is a bill in the House that has not come up for a vote, which would abolish ICE. Right. Uh, that's some a somewhat controversial bill, and there that's are a lot the of Pocan people. That's the Pocan bill. Uh, that's exactly right. Yeah, and it's also co-sponsored by Pramila Jayapal. That's right. Uh, whether it, that one will ever come to a vote, um, who knows? It's seeming like a bit of a third rail uh, in, in, in uh, It Congress is, yeah. and there's uh, some sentiment that... Uh, support for that bill, if it did come up for a a vote, uh, could backfire on people in certain districts. So that one needs to be carefully considered. Yeah. Well, so then another very timely ask has to do with farmers. Uh, As most people listening will know, uh, after Trump's tariffs started to impact U.S. farmers, which I should mention uh, he was repeatedly warned would happen, uh, the administration is now giving away $12 billion in tax money to farmers to make up the shortfall. Um, What are we asking senators and members of Congress to do here at this point? Uh, Well, of course, what Trump has done with the $12 billion is simply to foist part of the cost of his tariffs on the American taxpayer right? Uh, because it's going to be taxes that are going to have to be used to either pay that $12 billion in the first place or to repay the loans that, that the nation is going to have to take out to fund that $12 billion. Not to put too fine a point on it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what we are asking people to do is to call uh, our senators to and our representatives Uh, to support bills that have been introduced. They're actually Republican bills that have been introduced in the House and in the Senate uh, that would have the effect of requiring congressional approval for tariffs that are imposed by the president on the basis of national security 
under the Trade Enhancement Act. The Trade Enhancement Act gives the president the authority to impose tariffs uh, unilaterally without any sort of congressional oversight or approval if he does so on the basis of a threat to national security. Well, of course, Canada, the European Union, do not represent threats to national security. Right. Uh, and so uh, Senators Corker and Toomey, both Republicans, have introduced S-3103. Uh, Representative Mike Gallagher, a Republican from Wisconsin, has introduced H.R. 6337. Uh, we want to see our representatives and our senators get behind those bills. Uh, I might mention that today, earlier today, a bipartisan bill uh, sponsored by Doug Jones, uh, Alabama from Alabama, a Democrat from Alabama, and Lamar Alexander, a Republican from Tennessee, was introduced uh, that would have the effect of at least delaying the 20 to 25 percent tariff on imported autos uh, that the administration uh, has in mind. So uh, those are two bills that people can get behind uh, in calls to their senator senators and their congressmen. Well, you know, I should point out that the $12 billion bailout of farmers has not been terribly popular with Republicans in Congress, even from some of the states where they have farm-heavy populations. And a number of the bills that you just spoke about are either authored by Republicans or they are bipartisan bills. So it sounds like there's a real opening. There is a real opening. Uh, a lot of people recognize the $12 billion for what it is, basically a bribe to farmers to vote Republican in the next election. <laughs> Again, not and, to put uh, and, too fine a point uh, on it, but you're at, exactly right. After yeah. which they're screwed. Yeah. And finally, uh, there is a call to action for universal health care. Congresswoman, again, Pramila Jayapal of Seattle, has introduced H.R. 6097, which lays the groundwork for universal health care on a state original level. Of course, this is happening in the House. What are we asking our senators to do here? Co-sponsor a bill in the Senate that would uh, effectively uh, allow the same thing. And there isn't one currently. There isn't one currently. So we'd like to see... Uh, Maria Cantwell and Senator Murray co-sponsor such a bill. There is uh, an effort and will be when the uh, uh, state legislature reconvenes to adopt state legislation for universal health care. Uh, one bill uh, came one vote short of making it out of committee in the last legislative session, and that was only because a Democrat, Mark Mullet, who I think very highly of, voted against that bill. And so... Ultimately, if we want to see universal health care, it means flipping the 8th, flipping other districts from R to D, uh, congressional districts, flipping seats in the state legislature uh, from R to D, and per specifically to people who will expressly support the concept of universal health care. So that's something for you to check out, gang, when you go to your uh, voter pamphlets to see where the, the stance is. If you're you know, wondering about who to support for your legislative race, either for Senate or for the House races, uh, that could definitely be a factor. And in fact, that is one reason why I think we should get out there and really canvas like crazy for a lot of these candidates who are running on the Democratic ticket, because increasing the margin for the Democrats could absolutely make a difference on issues like universal health care. Let's remember how the universal health care system in Canada came to be. It started with the province of Saskatchewan. 
not one of the more populous provinces in Canada. 1947, Saskatchewan adopted a universal health care system. It was very successful. First of all, it provided universal health care at a lower cost to most people than they had been experiencing before. And pretty soon, businesses were looking to locate in Saskatchewan or to expand there rather than somewhere else because it was much easier to hire qualified workers when you could offer them more extensive health coverage at a lower cost. See, I didn't know when I brought you in today that I was going to be getting a valuable history lesson. Uh, Well, and and what happened was one after another of the provinces adopted their own universal health care system because they uh, recognized the competition for Saskatchewan until ultimately in 1966, the Canadian Parliament adopted a national system. My prediction is that the same thing could happen in the United States. It takes one state to uh, be the first to adopt a universal health care system. But once it does that, it's going to be a better system with better outcomes less expensive for people, and it's going to cover everybody. And the same thing will happen in the United States that happened in Canada. And 10, 20 years from now, if we all get off our duff (laughs) and help to elect people who will make that happen, we can look back with a great deal of pride in Washington and be able to say it was here with Washingtonians that our national healthcare system began. It's music to my ears, man. You know, and I'll mention in closing, uh, speaking of voting and canvassing, there are a bunch of events happening this weekend as part of Indivisible's 100 Days Out Week of Action. Uh, from Friday, July 27th to Sunday, July 29th, Indivisible members in Washington are going to be out knocking on doors, making calls to voters, generally just mobilizing around the 2018 election. And if you want to do that, and I hope that you do, uh, I'll have links for you guys on the website to find an event near you. So that will do it for this week's Calls to Action. Jim Austin, thanks as always. Okay, glad to be here. And that's going to do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there. Please keep the correspondence is coming. The address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thanks again to my guests, Claire and Barry Nelson of Granny's Respond, and thank you to Kathy Geller of Siska. Thanks also to Jim Austin, and especially thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.